Welcome to another edition of the Search Engine Journal Show. I am Danny Goodwin, Executive Editor of Search Engine Journal. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're continuing our ongoing series, Better Know and SEO Pro. We'll be joined by Brian McDowell in just a moment. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Search Engine Journal Show is brought to you by Shop SEJ. Did you know that more than 1 million SEO and marketing professionals visit Search Engine Journal every month? Want to get your brand or product noticed by our audience? Now you can with shopsej.com. Advertising on Search Engine Journal is super easy and fast. Whether your goal is to build brand awareness, generate qualified leads, or promote a product or service, we'll help you find the most effective advertising option for you. Promoting your brand to people who matter has never been this easy. Advertise with Search Engine Journal and see the results for yourself. Visit now to learn more about our advertiser special. If you buy three native ads, the fourth one is totally free. We also offer ebook, webinar, and podcast sponsorship, and many more products. Find the right advertising solution on Shop SEJ for your company. Visit shopsej.com to learn more. In today's edition of Better Know an SEO Pro, I will be talking to Brian McDowell. Brian is the principal uh, digital strategist at Bloomreach. In the past, he was the director of search intelligence and co-founder at Conductor. He also was the lead SEO for Red Ventures and LendingTree. For the past 13 years, Brian has uh, been focused solely on SEO, but he actually started his career as a software engineer, web designer, and SEO. You can read some of Brian's work on the Conductor website, uh, but you're more likely to catch him speaking at a conference, as he's spoken at a lot of them over the years. Uh, those have included PubCon, Commerce Next, Internet Summit, Search Exchange, C3, Startup Institute, Inbound Marketing Summit, SMX, Market America International Convention, and SEMCLT. You can find Brian on Twitter at Brian underscore McDowell and on LinkedIn simply as McDowell. Brian McDowell, welcome to the Search Engine Journal Show, my friend. Thank you, Danny. It's exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. It is awesome to have you here. Uh, so let's kick off our discussion uh, a little bit with Bloomreach. Uh, maybe you could tell everybody, uh, you know, what is Bloomreach and what you do for them? Sure thing. So, so Bluebridge is a is a SaaS platform, and I'll, I'll start by saying that our, our primary product right now is a um, it's a headless CMS. It's an open intelligent platform. Uh, but my role at uh, at Bloomreach goes back to their product that I think most of the audience here is familiar with, which is their SEO product, uh, which revolves around uh, content and also internal linking on large e-commerce sites. You know that if you rem if you think about an e-commerce site and down at the bottom of category and product pages, you have the related links at the bottom and you have, you know, specific faceted category pages that we open up to the search engines. And what I do is I primarily service that, uh, that industry, the e-commerce industry as an SEO consultant to help these large companies understand how to move the needle and grow, grow their SEO teams and their, their SEO strategies. Gotcha. Sounds good. Okay. Um, so can you share anything about maybe what is, what has been working for Bloomreach in terms of SEO or just in terms of digital marketing, um, like right now, what, what, what you're seeing that's working well for you guys? That is, that's a loaded question. Absolutely. So we can, <laughs> we can talk about it in two parts, right? You sure. know, with, with our product, what's working right in enterprise e-commerce and what's working now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll break it up into two parts. You know, the the way you know we provide lift and the way our product works and that we see continue to work is you know we assist with the internal linking of a website, right? Uh, the AI of our systems find products uh, that are either trending or that are being looked for the most often. Uh, or that need the most love and will provide that that nice internal linking structure to them. If you think about how a large e-commerce site works, you have a deep level product page that might be linked to on uh, the fifth or sixth page in pagination. So Google can't really find a good link path to those products. Right. Uh, we surface those products up by by making them more attractive by by putting the relevant links on relevant pages. Right. Okay. Um, and we also provide uh, pages that allow you, from a commerce perspective. Uh, to add content to product grid pages and and release faceted product grid pages. Now, what's working today? That continues to work, right? That that process has has been working for many years now and continues to to work well. Uh, but today's uh, industry, it's a little bit different. You know, I, I think we've seen quite a few changes, especially in the last year, uh, with Google particularly and the growth of organic search. It's uh, it's definitely a dif- different industry than it was five, ten, fifteen years ago. Um, and our, our strategies have changed. The growth share isn't there. We're not seeing the growth share that we've seen over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely shrinking. Um, you know, we, we could talk about, you know, what some of those opportunities are. You know, I know, you know, we'll talk about speaking here in a couple of minutes, but uh, in a couple of week on, uh, weeks, I'm speaking at PubCon about, you know, the mobile first index and, you know, how that's impacting um, organic search. And it seems like an old topic now, right? We've been talking about this for some time. Uh, but I think we're really seeing uh, some of the impact lately. Uh, last year, uh, we're in e-commerce specifically, right? Uh, we saw a tremendous amount of people move over from dynamically served sites or uh, separate subdomains for mobile onto a responsive, uh, a responsive design and a re- responsive kind of UX. Uh, we do find that that type of site does, uh, they do excel a little bit better and they do uh, perform a little bit better from a mobile standpoint, but that's also probably because they have a team of people who are focused on the, the mobile experience. Mm-hmm. Google now, if you look at, you know, what's working today and some of the things that are working, I'll use both our data and I'll use, you know, a, a very popular data study by Rand Fishkin that was just released a couple of weeks ago uh, when he was talking about, you know, less than half of the clicks uh, that are happening on organic search are going through to um to, through to the end site, you know, I think he said 40%, I believe, is what that data study said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do our own trends analysis. So we we gather together, um, you know, about 2 billion in organic visits year over year, and we look at how that's trending, right, uh, month over month and, and year over year. It's nothing we we publish commercially. You know, maybe we can work on something afterwards. I'll, I'll share, actually, I'll share some of this data as well um with you and maybe we can we can release it but sure. uh, we typically share this data as a trends report for our clients and it, it shows kind of those growth rates mm-hmm. um what's happening now as we go to this mobile first index as we see google focused more and more on more on mobile at the end of q1 of this year we started seeing images show up more in organic search results so alongside your listing you have the, the image from your page um, the primary platforms out there, your Bright Edge, your Conductor, uh, SEMrush, you know, any any platform out there uh, really reports on the carousel of the basic image of images showing up. I, I haven't found a platform yet that reports if an image is showing up with your organic listing. 
Uh, and there are still some premier brands that don't have that. At my last check, Target was starting to get them, but Best Buy was still having difficulty getting their images to mm-hmm. uh, to show up. They're not they're not clients of ours, but I will say that I've worked with a handful of our clients of actually producing image sitemaps, which we've known about for years, but very few people actually execute on them. Uh, and I've found that there, there's a couple nuances, right, with the XML sitemap when you include images. Uh, Google does allow you to include multiple images per page. Um, I've found that, and I'm not sure if this is significant or correlated, but in the sitemaps that we've been creating, we're actually including a thumbnail image of the primary image. Uh, that's 104 by 104 pixels. Now, Google may have changed it over the last couple of weeks, but at the time of, of, of this execution and currently, Google's serving those images in organic search at 104 by 104 pixels. Mm-hmm. And they're not serving it from your site. They're actually caching the image like they cache your information as well. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're served on Google servers. So if we can provide Google the proper, uh, I, I'm not saying for sure, right? Like I said, it's correlated, right? We're right. releasing these sitemaps. And, uh, you know, in some of the studies, we found a 10 to 13% increase in image search results mm. for these brands. And the, the results are there. You know, the click-throughs and the revenue, I'm going to say, to be honest, haven't, uh, haven't really matched up with the experiment yet, but we're seeing that increase in visibility. Mm. Um, the and what was like I mentioned, and if I get long winded, stop me at any time. Oh, um, <laughs> the article I wanted to bring in, you know, there's a couple data points just that, that correlate with this this image focus as of late. Mm-hmm. Um, the article I was mentioning by Spark Toro and, and Rand Fishkin, um, it's a it's a very interesting article if you get a chance to to take a look at it. And I'm sure a lot of the the industry has, but it breaks up the uh, Q2 2019 um, market share of of um, search engines. Mm-hmm. And it shows, and this is non-app based, it's all browser based, and I believe it showed, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, I'm, I'm kind of grasping here, but Google Image Search was the number two search engine, right? And it accounted for 20% of the market share. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure we can we can find it, pull it up and maybe, you know, share the exact data metrics there. But the third uh, biggest search engine out there is YouTube. I think that came in at two or 3%, and then Amazon was a, a close four at two or 3% as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the interesting thing there is if you look at Google image search and we think about images being a form of content now, uh, Google is monetizing image search a lot more lately, right? You can see more paid advertisements up at the top of image search. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure they've been there for some time. I haven't really been paying attention to them until the previous few months as I've been digging more and more into imagery. Um, that being said, right, trying to optimize those, we've also found correlation if you use Google PageSpeed Insights. And I know images are probably the number one uh, kind of crusher, but images seem to have the biggest weight when it comes to page load time and page mm-hmm. speed. Uh, so there is an opportunity when, when we're talking about all these sites going over to responsive design, uh, using the source set attribute. Um, I, haven't, I don't have enough clients to have the data myself, but um, Scott Polk, did a, a good data study and he presented at PubCon in, uh, in Florida at the beginning of the year uh, where he had some really nice data to share. I don't want to talk about his data because I, I can't speak for it and I don't know it off by heart, but he definitely showed some great results uh, with, you know, serving the proper image size. And that came on the heels of Gary Alias, who was going to talk about, you know, what's new in search, did a whole keynote on image optimization. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, is is image going to make or break your campaign? I would say that, 
you know, use it with a grain of salt, but we're definitely seeing more and more images show up, especially in the, the mobile serving of, of the of organic search results. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just an area that I still find uh, a lot of these large brands still, the, I don't want to say take for granted, but still haven't focused out properly. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, uh, next question. So I know you're pretty much, uh, you consider yourself a data-driven marketer. So I was curious, sort of how, how do you measure success uh, in terms of SEO performance for yourself or for Bloomreach? Um, I was just curious what sort of the metrics that you look at and go, you know, was was this, uh, you know, campaign successful? Um, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, the, another, another big question, because I do, I try to segment that out. Um, you know, obviously, there's the the executive metrics, right, which comes mm -hmm. down to revenue, right, comes right. down to visits, comes comes down to conversion rate. Mm -hmm. um, the so I'll start there. So I, I break it up into two parts, right? There's that side and there's also, so what I refer to as the uh, autonomous user uh, KPIs. So mm -hmm. Google and, and BingBot uh, themselves are a user and a lot of companies don't view them as users, but mm -hmm. they're an autonomous user and they're opening the door to 30 plus percent of inbound traffic, right? Mm -hmm. But to measure success in, in my mind, it always has to come down to revenue, one, but two, a lot of these companies, large companies still even today have, are having a difficult time investing in, uh, in the manpower and investing, I don't want to say tools or platforms, but investing in the mindshare and the understanding and the buy-in that SEO is vitally important, mm -hmm. right? Uh, getting, getting SEO into the product queue, you know, getting more projects, and I, I shouldn't call them projects, let's call them experiments uh, done, I think is vitally important. So to have that experimental view of constantly trying to see what's going to push and pull the needle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from a performance standpoint, it's it's a little disheartening. You know, we still see, and I, I hate constantly going back to this this mobile view, but the transition over to mobile is not stopping. Right? If you take the top ten percent of the customers that we work with, the top ten percent, which we actually consider outliers, right? Uh, the top ten percent are averaging about seventy seven percent mobile. Uh, market share for their organic search traffic. On average, it's it's hovering right around fifty percent, fifty one percent for the re rest of market is where we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem we're seeing is as people shift over, you know, to mobile, which has grown ten percent year over year, went from forty two percent to fifty one percent, you know, between two thousand eighteen two thousand nineteen. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is the conversion rate on mobile is sixty percent less than the conversion rate on desktop. Right, and we're also seeing like the add to cart is definitely much, much lower, right? Not only that, cart, the average online order value is also much lower. Mm -hmm. So while we're dealing with these headwinds, you know, we, we have to make sure we're focused on the, um, the performance metrics and how people are using our mobile sites. So to me, measuring success is really getting not only the executive level, but the rest of the, uh, the organizations to understand what this landscape looks like. Right, because the years of 20, 25 percent growth, and there's probably some people who are going to argue with me and and uh, kind of trash what I'm about to say right now, um, and that's okay because I'll stand by this. You know, the the years of 20, 25 percent growth on a consistent basis are are getting few and far between. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's I don't want to say it's status quo, but right now we we have to get companies not only to to invest properly in a shrinking market share. Um, and lower annual growth, uh, we have to make sure that they, they're bought in on what we're trying to do. So again, for four, you know, metrics that I measure on revenue, 
I try to stay away from conversion rate and the average online value unless I segment out desktop and mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, they should be they should be segmented out completely. In fact, I challenge everybody out there, all SEOs right now, that if you're doing a, a PowerPoint deck or anytime you're presenting and you're sharing a screenshot, share a screenshot from your mobile phone. Share a screenshot, you know, change the, the user agent from your desktop to show mobile and then, you know, scroll over to a more of a, a desktop resolution. Mm-hmm. It, it goes a long way. Um, companies still focus on that desktop view. and They, they should. It's still about 50%, 49, 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've got to change their mindset. And that's where we need to invest is going over and get those conversions. Now, on the technical side, uh, the KPIs that I follow, um, I am an old school SEO. A lot of the, the KPIs that I follow from the autonomous user are debated in the industry. I still follow them. Um, I am still a big fan of crawl budget. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of how much Gary Elias and John Mueller tell me not to be, uh, <laughs> enterprise sites, when I'm working with millions and millions of pages, it matters to me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we, our product, and I, I don't want to push the Bloomreach product too much, but the product, like I said, it, it shortens that, it, it compresses that link graph to make sure the most important pages are linked to the most, right? And right. we have found statistical significance, you know, using Monte Carlo simulations that prove it works. Right, making sure that your link graph is built properly on your site. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to want to call it, you know, you relate. God, I hate using this term. Old school SEOs would call it page link sculpting. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not what I'm doing. It's more of a gray hat term, if you will. Right. But it, it links are still important, right? So mm-hmm. understanding, you know, what we're doing from a crawling perspective is important. The KPIs I follow there are, you know. A shrinking Google index is not necessarily a bad thing in e-commerce, right? If you're reducing the facets and you have a, a bunch of unnecessary facets out there that have very thin content, I'm a firm believer that that ultimately will hurt your site. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we clean those up, I mean, we see success in, in doing that. Um, the other metrics I follow just from a an autonomous KPI perspective uh, is I do still look at the old version of Google Search Console um, and I look at crawl rate. Uh, there's definitely a correlation between reducing uh, the downloaded time, you know, per page and the amount of pages that Google will crawl on your site per day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I, I try to focus on performance there, you know, using my performance metrics, and I honestly, I cheat. I'll go to to using some of Google's own PageSpeed Insights and Lighthouse reporting for those KPIs, right? Because I think those are things you can hand over to IT and say, hey, how can we work on this? You know, why is our Dom size so huge and so forth, but they're, they're exact numbers, right? And they're easy to pull. Um, but the I lost my train of thought. I was really excited about what I was going to say next, but it, <laughs> it, re, it referred back to, you know, this concept of really paying attention to Google as a user and making sure the company understands that there's a different type of user that essentially opens the door for our visitors. You know, we can convert all day long, but if we can't open the door to let them come in, they're not going to buy anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Very good. I like that. Um, so we sort you sort of started to touch on this, so I'll just ask you straight up about it. So what have you found works the best when you're trying to educate organizations or evangelize about SEO? Uh, sort of like what works, what doesn't work, and what have you what have you sort of learned over the years about that process? Yeah, sure. So blatantly honest always goes over well. Being genuine, uh, having an absolute passion for what you're presenting goes a long way, mm-hmm. right? Um, no, knowing what you're talking about obviously goes a long way too, but having sure. data to back you up, 
Yeah. Um, data first and foremost is uh, empirical data is is very hard to uh, to dispute. I will say that, and this is something we do, and this is something I work with. You know, the the platform providers of a lot of our clients. So I am the interim SEO for a couple of our clients too, while they're hiring. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is keeping, like you said, keeping the momentum and keeping the understanding of SEO open. Uh, but what I challenge uh, data providers for, so that would be people like us at Bloomreach, uh, people like Bright Edge, you know, Conductor, Botify, Deepcrawl, any of these guys, mm -hmm. not affiliated with any of them, but all, all of these great platforms have some really good proprietary data. And I challenge each of them every time, you know, I'm working with a client is to, you know, one, see if you can get some services hours added into your contract. And all of these guys have some kind of really smart SEOs in-house. Every single one of them do. And they're all brilliant, right? They're, they're all looking at the industry from a lens of multiple sites together. When you're working for one company, theoretically, you only have access to the, the cohort of companies that that or brands that that company owns. Right, the right. search console and the analytics for those those companies. Um, you know, just for example of what I put together for our customers, which is not part of the Bloomreach product. Um, but when I'm going in and I'm educating to you know the executive staff or the IT staff, one of the things I like to do is every week we collect the week over week growth, month over month growth, and year over year growth of organic traffic to category pages, which is our product grid pages your product display pages, which is your, your PDP or your product page, uh, thematic page, which is our content page, homepage, and then others. Mm -hmm. And I show not only on a graph, you know, their movement um, going back, you know, up to two, two plus years, I believe is when we started putting this together. Uh, but I also trend it over um, a benchmark and I do a trim mean. So I remove the top and bottom 10% for each individual. And I say I do. Our BA Shruti does a wonderful job of putting this together. I, I help design it but she's the one collecting the data and I'm presenting it to clients. So mm -hmm. I do want to call her out as just being an amazing, amazing resource and just a lover of data, but showing, Hey, here's how you're doing compared to the rest of the industry. And sometimes going further and even doing an industry benchmark um, is vital. You know, executives want to know how you're doing compared to, uh, to the norm. Mm -hmm. um, and also explaining that what you're looking at, not isn't necessarily what they believe to be their, their current competitors, but this is their online competitors. Uh, sites like SEMrush does a great job with the delta and gap analysis, uh, pulling data for that kind of information. But, you know, again, just answering your question, being genuine, uh, being brutally honest, right? If the, if the baby, if the baby's ugly, call the baby ugly, mm -hmm. uh, in a nice way, yeah. <laughs> um, and using empirical data and benchmark data, um, to, to tell your story. And if you have a history of the industry and you're able to pull up articles or, or build some correlation behind some of the shifts between what's going on in the industry. Uh, that always helps as well, because you want to try to pepper in as much as you can, some kind of education with the limited time you have with the executive group. Uh, biggest thing is, is budget, making sure they understand. I like to know how much they're spending on paid search because you can correlate, Hey, you're paying you know, sometimes five to 10 X on paid search to what you're investing in organic search. But organic search, you know, has has more opportunity there. You know, why aren't we investing more? The more you invest, the more you can experiment, the more you can understand the data, the more you can build your own data aggregates using the APIs from, you know, the, the platforms that I was just mentioning. So mm -hmm. excellent. Okay. Uh, so I was looking at LinkedIn and I also saw that you one of your other sort of uh, roles is to help interview and hire people 
uh, for SEO positions. Mm-hmm. So if you could put your hiring cap on for a second, I'd be curious to know if you have any like a favorite question that helps weed out poor candidates when you're when you're hiring. <laughs> yeah, I've got a go to, and uh, you know, I've, I've spoken on this topic a couple times too, and that uh, you know, I, this is one of my favorite things to say and do, and uh, you know, I'm going to give it away if anybody's listening, right? But mm-hmm. I, I love, of course, we're going to do our sleuth thing before we jump on a call with a candidate. Hopefully, everybody does that. And I, mm-hmm. I try to find something personal. Maybe it's a college they went to, or something that they they enjoy doing. If I can't find anything, I'll literally my first question will be, you know, in your free time when you're not focused on on working. You know, what are some of the things that you like to do? You know, do you like to ice fish? Do you like to rock climb? Do you race cars? Are you in MMA, right? You name it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a second life. And once I find out that second life, because I'm going to make a bold assumption that if you're interviewing for my company, you've already done some due diligence to figure out what's going on on the website, right? And you already right. have some good ideas and some good things that you want to drop. Once I, let's say, find uh, Danny, what are, what are some of your... Uh, let's let's role play here what what kind of things do you like doing outside of work using air quotes oh um let's see i love to listen to music i'm a huge music guy um video games yeah i don't know Uh, very much yeah like video games go to movies i I love going out to eat restaurants that's a huge thing so yeah does that help (laughs) i'm gonna it does absolutely helps and i'm gonna go with gaming because this this could actually lead into one of my my favorite current use cases for social sharing and and like engaging with the community mm-hmm. uh, gaming is a massive platform right now sure so and I'll, i man i'll talk about this data too but so what i would do during the interview process is i would say okay gaming let's let's look at uh gaming chairs uh, are really big right now right mm-hmm. there's some gaming chairs get up to 500 dollars. so i'll say you know, I'll ask you, you know, you're in gaming. What's, what's a popular gaming chair, like secret labs or, or GT racing. Ooh. One of those guys. Um, and I'll ask you to open up. Sorry, go ahead. You pick one. Oh, I, I'm not even sure. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not that <laughs> hardcore. So. We'll, go, <laughs> yeah. we'll go with secret Labs. secret okay. lab chair. Let's just say, you know, let's, let's say we find one. Okay. Um, hopefully we're screen sharing, right? That would be the ideal situation. It's not always necessary. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's in person and I can fire up the site and I can turn the computer around. I like to fire up a site and I, I literally will just say tear it apart. Mm-hmm. I love to watch. The reason I like to watch the screen is I like to see what they do, right? Do they go to the source code? You know, is it their own computer? Do they have tools um, like a platform provider where they can go in and, and start looking at data nice. without access to search console, without access to analytics? I like mm-hmm. seeing how somebody's going to do competitive analysis. And now it's a, a, a site that they didn't anticipate. Right. So everything's new, everything is raw, and I can see how their brain works. And yeah. honestly, if, if you can see that happen in real time, you get a really good understanding of what you're going to get You know, mm-hmm. once they come through the doors. That's that's a great answer. I like that. It sort of really just gets into their thinking and their process. So that's that's the way to cut through all the you know you can memorize like facts and you know best practices and all that, but there's nothing that beats that. So that's a really that's smart. Um, do you have if I if I say to you, is there like any like super funny hiring stories? Like have you ever had like a super bizarre applicant and you're like, how did this person even get to me? Or like, did you have any any like really funny stories from hiring? Um, funny story. I'm I'm gonna respectfully yield on that question. Okay. I have some stories. Um, <laughs> they could be listening. Uh, if you weren't hired, there's probably a story. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
you know, there's there's multiple different types of personalities out there, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it it amazes me even looking at LinkedIn. And I used to track this when I was at Conductor. It's been years since I tracked this this metric, but I used to like following how many people when you're looking at uh, at LinkedIn um, had SEO as as part of their profession, mm-hmm. and uh, especially around 2010, 2011. We just saw it grow in astronomical numbers, and of course, that was around the time when these big companies were really hiring aggressively. And it, it still baffles me that candidates can get through a couple stages of of people with smoke screens. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I will say, you know, there, there are some people that that surprise me when you you get on a call and at the end of the you know the interview you end up going longer and you end up just talking about the industry and you know those people tend to go a long way because you understand the real passion that they have for it so mm-hmm. I, i'd say that the the best stories i have are actually from the best candidates that I, i've given a thumbs up to that just show a genuine interest in the industry gotcha fair enough um, so yeah, um, what what do you think are some of the biggest uh, either challenges or opportunities you can go either direction for uh, in terms of enterprise SEO and e-commerce right now? Biggest opportunities or threats in e-commerce SEO. Yeah. So you know, obviously the the biggest threat, and I'm looking, and this is a shout out to anybody who has this data because I'm I'm trying to find it right now. Um, here I am bringing up mobile for like the fifth time. Um, one of, one of the threats right now is we're seeing, if you look in search console, especially, you know, going back to the beginning of this year, we're seeing a lot of clients retain their positions, uh, seeing that impression rate, uh, keep the same trend year over year, but we see the clicks going down. And as we look at the mobile experience of, of how search, you know, works, the very first thing you're inundated with, especially for product level searches and PDP level searches, is you're, you're greeted with the paid advertisements that take up the entire screen of a mobile device, right? And your first indication is to scroll left and right. In fact, Google cuts off an image to let you know you can scroll to the right. Um, and the first interaction in mobile now is this above the fold, full screen interaction, scrolling left or right before you even scroll up and down to see products. And then you get your featured snippet, then you get your question answer, then you get your paid advertisements, mm-hmm. and then you get one or two listings, then you get your local, and then you get your, oh, let's throw some video in there now too. Video is <laughs> definitely starting to pick up faster. The threat right now is user behavior. And, you know, there's, we're, we have so limited time and people are expecting instant gratification, right? Streaming TV, not watching commercials, binge watching t- television. You know, not even going out to the restaurant anymore, ordering it from Grubhub and DoorDash where you, you get everything instantaneously, right? Buying everything on Amazon, right? And yep. I know my clients are not aren't gonna like me saying this, but Amazon is the eight hundred pound gorilla, right? Mm-hmm. This instant gratification of I'm gonna order it now, I don't have to go to the store, it's gonna be on my doorstep tomorrow. The same thing is happening with the mentality on how people are searching, right? They need this instant gratification. So going back to the risk of Target and Best Buy, who didn't didn't have, and I've got some screenshots of it, didn't have schema markup examples for PDP or product related searches. Mm-hmm. Didn't have images showing up. And this the screenshot is back from April. I think now Target has them, and Best Buy doesn't. But when you have such a little real estate to get in front of people when they're scrolling down through the page, 
Um, I use the term click blind. Uh, it's, it's just the way I refer to it. People are going to scroll right past you and it doesn't matter if you're target. It doesn't matter if you're best buy. Mm-hmm. It's going to, they're going to spend even a, a tenth of a second more. If there's an image, if there's star ratings, if there's pricing, if there's availability, making sure schema markup is solid. It, I mean, this is old school SEO. Like this isn't anything new, but it's a real estate grab. And right now the biggest opportunity is just making sure that you're properly attacking and, and obtaining as much real estate as possible in organic search, especially in e-commerce. Right. Okay. So let's uh, change gears just a little bit. Uh, I want to go back to where it all began for you in SEO. Uh, so where did your SEO journey begin? Uh, you know, When did you first hear about it? What led you to getting uh, involved in SEO? So I started, I didn't even know I was working on SEO when I first started. And I was I was building <laughs> building web pages and front page right. This is oh, like wow. late nineties, yep. early two thousands. I was doing JavaScript and Notepad on the, on Windows machines, and mm-hmm. you know I I thought it was cool. I thought I was doing a good job. I started trying to learn Flash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a temporary job working for a builder, home builder here in Charlotte, and uh, I was building their website. And, uh, you know, he wanted to rank well in, in Yahoo. This is 2000, it was 2000, 2001, right around there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was just looking into, okay, how do, how do I get into Yahoo? How do I rank well? And, you know, I continue to work in IT and on web stuff. And when I worked for LendingTree, I started doing QA for uh, a gentleman by the name of Rob Lenderman, who's not a, not a well-known person in the industry from a search perspective. But to me, he was a rock star when I was at LendingTree, right? They were investing in SEO in 2005, 2006. And this guy was making money hand over fist and would just walk through the hallways. Everybody wanted to know who he was, right? He was just, he was the, the rock star of the company. Rob Lenderman, I'm going to throw his name out there one more time. Uh, don't talk to him very much anymore, but awesome guy, very smart. Um, I started doing QA stuff for him. I was at QA and, and LendingTree and I was uh, doing regression tests and I was doing a lot of the SEO regression tests and seeing them go through to production. And I was learning about these things we had to follow and, and test when we went through to production that at first didn't make sense to me, but I started learning. And when I went over to development of LendingTree, I had the opportunity to go in under Rob's uh, mentorship and actually start building architecture and solutions for SEO uh, using my, my programming knowledge uh, at LendingTree. And that's when I really got my first first cut at it. I'd say my most aggressive growth uh, and Paul Kennard is still a good friend. He he took over Rob Lenderman's spot at LendingTree. I'm still in touch with him. Really um, just brilliant thinker. He's not focused 100% on SEO anymore. But the passion he brought to LendingTree, like I mentioned before, like telling stories with a passion, the way he was able to get buy-in mm-hmm. at that company by just the pure excitement he had for the industry got me excited for the industry. Mm-hmm. And I went to Red Ventures, and I'd I'd say my core learning was Red Ventures. Um, I was given an opportunity when I left LendingTree to to start a channel that was, uh, it wasn't very well known. It was neglected. I think, I, I don't want to give exact numbers, but uh, it was, the, the numbers were dismal and minimal. I was the only person focused on SEO for multiple brands. And over my three years there, you know, grew a team, got 10 people, keep 10 people on the SEO team. Mm-hmm. I had dedicated developers. I had interns and, and really grew the channel. But the great thing is with Red Ventures, and for those of you who don't know who they are, they're kind of like a super affiliate. They hate when that term is used. <laughs> they do all of the marketing, right? 
They, they run the call centers. So they don't deliver leads. They deliver sales. Mm-hmm. And that's a big difference from what a typical affiliate. And Rick Elias and uh, Tim Kulik over at Red Ventures uh, basically allowed me to spend effortlessly. And I had no budget as long as, A, we were learning, but, you know, two, we were making money, which we were hand over fist. And we were trying all kinds of tactics to see what would move the needle and, and what would be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, developing, I can't say developing, designing applications. And this was designing platforms before Conductor existed, before Raven existed, right? Before Moz existed. Mm-hmm. Um, had uh, Colin Mutter and, and Ryan Currington and, and Kyle Getson building applications for organic search for my team uh, and things that would increase visibility by like 68%, like just building these great tools. And, and that's really where I learned the most because we we're able to dissect things to such a degree and iterate on them and experiment and constantly be in the stage of, I can beat that. I can beat that. I can do better. And, uh, and the just really aggressive focus by Red Ventures. And some people like it, some people don't. But every month, it wasn't a quarterly business review. We had monthly business reviews where we had to go over our P&L and go over our numbers and explain why we needed to invest more in headcount or where we had to invest more from a strategic standpoint. So it wasn't that we had an endless budget. We still had to fight for it, and we had to explain why we were going to spend it. Mm -hmm. But uh, Rick and the the leadership team there really focused me to look at the business aspects of the industry, which also, you know, when I went to Conductor to build platforms and so forth, uh, makes you think of Google a little bit different. Right. Google's a business and, you know, we're lucky to be there. So anyway, another long winded answer, but really it was a combination of, of really smart people uh, in a leadership mentality that, that I, I looked up to mm-hmm. that allowed me to grow and, and allowed me to, to learn and, uh, and focus on something that I enjoyed. And, and I couldn't, oh, and I can't, I'd be stupid if, since I'm mentioning names, you know, Seth Smirnick and uh, Stefan Bajai over at Conductor, mm-hmm. by far, you know, were, were huge advocates of the space, right? They're building an SEO platform, and, and that's what we were. That was our identity. Mm-hmm. And right now at Bloomreach, I, uh, I report to a gentleman by the name of Rich Fleck, who is probably the most impressive and impactful business person I've ever reported to in my life. And it's, it's, I'm 45 years old, and to have a mentor in my career that keeps me engaged and keeps me excited and opens up a different lens to look at the industry is uh, it's hard to find when you, when you try to continue to grow in a, in an industry like this. Absolutely. That's awesome. So uh, you just mentioned conductor briefly. So I want to ask you a little bit about that because I actually was unaware that you were involved with the, the creation of the, the conductor platform the, that was Searchlight, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so how that's did you a great story too. Yeah. Oh, sorry. How did you get involved with that? Uh, tell us a little bit about how that all all went down and what you did there. <laughs> so, I was a client of Link Experts at a at a former job. Uh, you could do the timeline and figure that one out pretty quick. Okay. Um, <laughs> was a client of theirs spending a good amount of money, and uh, you know, I would talk to them about some of the platforms we were building in house to to measure their product. And also to measure our strategies. And this was before they, they had a platform, right? Before there was a, a platform at Conductor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, talked to them over the years uh, about, you know, their vision and their, you know, their enterprise vision. And in 2010, 
when I had the opportunity to join uh, Conductor, they had already rebranded at the time. They had moved from Link Experts to Conductor, mm-hmm. so they had uh, an MV. They had an MVP, uh, you know, really juvenile MVP at that point in time. And two months after joining, we sold the Link product uh, to iAcquire and Jay Swanson. Jay Swanson came from TechLink Ads, uh, another really just brilliant person in the industry. Mm-hmm. I think he's over at, um, yeah, he's, he's doing some amazing things still in content. Um, and when we, re- when we moved primarily to a platform provider, there was a small group, you know, the, the company split in half, right? Mm-hmm. Jay Swanson and iAcquire took half of our employees, right? Mm-hmm. Half of our books. And, uh, the ones left over, and, and Seth can probably give you the exact number. I want to say there was about 20 of us. Uh, we sat, Seth sat us down and, you know, confirmed that, hey, we're, we're going to go at this and we're going to be just pit bulls in this industry and we're going to, we're going to do this. Like we're, we're all in and everybody sitting here is, is all in as well. Uh, he gave us all, you know, fully vested interest in the organization, uh, labeled us all as co-founders and, uh, that's exactly what we were. And we, we rang the bell and there was some, it's not going through a startup is not always easy. Right. You know, there's a certain level of, you know, when you're going after valuation, you know, there's a certain amount of, of sales you need and there's a certain amount of growth that you have to show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were dealing with a highly competitive industry and it's our biggest competitor, bright edge, who I'm fond of both systems now, right. I use them both. Um, bright edge kept us solid and, and really kept pushing us forward. And I think, the existence of platforms like Bright Edge Conductor and, and some of the other incumbents, I think, push each other further to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's essentially how Conductor happened. You know, it started with, uh, you know, just an understanding of need for the industry mm-hmm. and large companies' need for platform and data and understanding and reading the data a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also a very strategic move to move away from a linking product that you know, comes off of the heels of Mayday, comes off of the heels of, you know, if you think of early 2010 and Vince, the Vince update in 2009, Mm -hmm. you know, coming off of some major algorithm updates that just smacked people. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got out at the right time. Definitely. Very cool. Uh, Let's see. So I guess looking back on, on your career, do you have sort of a proudest moment or greatest achievement, you know, to this point? Uh, of course, there's always more to do, but to this point, um, is there anything that sort of just stands out as like something that you're super proud of? I think my crowning moment is the time I was on the Search Engine Journal podcast. Ooh, um, definitely <laughs> the the epitome of my career. Um, <laughs> I'd say that the, there's so many milestones, Danny. It's mm-hmm. um, I and the people. I, I'd say the the people make this so hard to choose like an exact moment. Sure. If I look back and say, "Wow, this moment was really really cool." Um, obviously there's a, there's a lot of wins from a, a business perspective that I think are really cool that are like aha moments, but I did have the opportunity to speak at the market America international convention in 2010. And most people probably don't know what that is, but they fill the Greensboro auditorium with people from around the world who are selling market America products and who are, you know, kind of resellers of their product. There's over 20,000 people. I think they said like 24 some odd thousand people. And I was on stage, you know, uh, right after Kim Kardashian, right before the CEO, I'm on stage in front of the Jumbotron, you know, with thousands of people. And I did the 10 to 15 minute kind of spiel on SEO and then got about 2000 people in a room and did a keynote on SEO uh, mm-hmm. and, and the power of organic search. And uh, it was surreal, absolutely mm-hmm. surreal. And, uh, 
you know, I think looking, I wouldn't say it's my proudest moment. I would say it's probably the, the one moment that was just mm-hmm. an, Oh my, Oh my God kind of feeling. Right. You know? mm-hmm. Now, did you know it was going to be 20,000 beforehand or was that like something you didn't find out right away? <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. they, uh, <laughs> they showed videos from previous years. They do that every year. I'm not oh, sure okay. if they're still doing it. I was you know, I, I don't talk about Market America that often. You know, I was sure. there for six months. Uh, you know, it's it, it was a good company. It had a good opportunity, but the opportunity at Conductor um, far outweighed my my mm-hmm. growth opportunity at Market America. So. Well, it seems like a good good point to shift to talking about speaking since we're we're doing that now. So, obviously, if that's like the hot, well, possibly the high water mark for your speaking. So, where did you actually start though? Because everyone starts from somewhere. Um, like when you first started speaking, like could you have imagined that you were going to get to that point where you'd be in front of twenty thousand people? Um, like how big was your first audience, and what was that the first experience like for you? Yeah, my first speaking arrangement was here at uh, SEM CLT. Uh, it's hosted and, and put on by a guy named Keith Schilling. He works for IBM. Mm. Um, he runs the, at the meetup group here in the Charlotte area. Um, in 2010, uh, he reached out to me and asked if I wanted to talk to his audience on on tools and, uh, you know, different platforms to use, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a different marketplace. The MarTech stack was totally different back in 2010. Oh. Um, conductor wasn't even around, right? They were just right. a, a blip on the map. Um, so, you know, having the opportunity to go in and, and talk to, I want to say the group was probably 50 or 60 people at most. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there was a, there was a guy in the group who hit me with probably the, the most cringeworthy question at the end. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, but it was, it, it kind of opened the door that reminded me that I loved sharing. You know, I had a team underneath me at that time at, at Red Ventures and, Mm-hmm. One of the things I love doing is getting people psyched about the industry. And I think the second speaking opportunity I had um, was probably my favorite conference. Uh, Brett Tabke gave me an opportunity to speak. Uh, I believe it was 2011, it might be 2012. I'll have to go back and look. Sure. Uh, at, in PubCon in Hawaii, oh. and, uh, I had the opportunity. It was a smaller audience, but I spoke with uh, Lisa LePay and uh, Scott Polk. I believe it was Scott Polk. Gosh, I have to go. Uh, anyway, I, I had an opportunity to speak out there. Can't even remember what I spoke on. Mm-hmm. And that opened the door there. And uh, since then, I've uh, kind of been bouncing around. I, I try to do PubCon as much as possible because the people and the content there, I'm, I'm quite fond of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will say I spoke at Etail East uh, just a week ago and was blown away at the size and, and the, the quality of content at that content, uh, mm-hmm. conference. So I sometimes I'll, you find gems, and I think I'm going to, to look into that one a little bit more as well. Mm-hmm. So for you, what, what do you consider is like a really good conference presentation? What you know for, for yourself, like what do you like to uh, you know focus in on? I'm guessing it's probably data. <laughs> data, yeah, yeah, fresh, fresh data. Yeah. Right? something somebody hasn't seen, or or even a process that people haven't seen. I think uh, what two years ago maybe at PubCon. I did uh, content audits for, for organic search and uh, had a full 40 minutes and uh, actually did a gap analysis uh, using exports from Nozzle and, and SEMrush. And, um, I, like, I don't like doing the same presentation, right? People, people know that. They can smell that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like using old data points. In fact, if it's over a year or too old, I'll call it out. But um, 
I try to try to keep it as fresh as possible. I try to insert data, you know, where I can, because we, you know, like I said, we have benchmark data that people probably haven't seen. Um, and then just sharing my, my passion, my interpretation, uh, my interpretation sometimes isn't always the popular vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's based on what I've seen in data. I would, I'm never really against the grain. I, I shouldn't say I say anything that's, that's way out there, but at the end of the day, if people get excited, if they have something to take away that they haven't seen before a data point or an execution, that's a win. Mm-hmm. Right? And that'll also get me brought back to speak again, right? If I'm doing the same presentation, I, Brett even says before you speak, he said, you know, under no circumstances can you use last year's presentation, mm-hmm. right? He, yep. he forces, it forces you to keep it current. Yep. Cool. So, um, what, what would be your best piece of advice for people who may be listening and want to someday get on the stage themselves and speak at a conference? Uh, what's sort of the key to success to, uh, you know, pitching or just like building a name for yourself that you, uh, what have you found works? Yeah, so I'll, I'll throw a couple of things out there. One is, uh, is invest. <laughs> and sometimes it's investing your own money. Uh, very first PubCon I went to, um, I actually, I won a poker, I came in third place in a poker tournament and, uh, I took that money and I immediately went back to the breeze bar and bought everybody drinks. Oh. Right? And I know that's, that sounds stupid, but you know, you can't be afraid to talk to people. If you're afraid to talk to somebody one-on-one, you're not going to be able to talk to a group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, finding the speakers that are out there now and, and just getting to know kind of the, each, each conference is going to have their own kind of group, their own following. Um, if you have something to share, right, if you have a unique perspective or and maybe it's not a unique perspective, maybe it's a perspective that's well known, but you can articulate it in such a way that that people can get excited about it. You know, that's what they're looking for. You know, there's still some one on one level, you know, execution out there in some of the some of the tracks. Most of them are high level, but you still have to, to read the audience. You know, it's investing in the, the industry you want to be in. Pitching, making sure your pitch is, you know, completely solid, doing a good speaker pitch. You know, you can't just say, I want to talk about, you know, mobile first index, right? You have to say, this is why I want to talk about it. Here's some of the data points that I'd like to contribute to. Here's some things that I think the, you know, the attendees will take away. And uh, by the way, I promise it's going to be unique. I promise I'm going to bring, you know, I'm going to bring it. That's the kind of pitch you want to put together, not just a, a, a session um, not bio, what's the word I'm looking for? A, tra- a talk track, you know, mm-hmm. be very explicit on what you're going to provide and what they can expect to take out. Mm-hmm. Um, gotcha. Cool. Um, so an, you mentioned like, you know, going to the bar and uh, buying people beer or whatever beverage they may be drinking. Um, do you have any other sort of tips for networking and just sort of making the most of a conference? Yeah, you know, net- networking can be hard, especially if you're shy. And, uh, you know, you do have to put on a different hat. Um, find the speakers. Typically at conferences, they have a different badge. Um, but I'll be honest, I've never, there's very few speakers I've met or attendees I've met that would push you at an arm's length, right? They're investing their time. Speakers invest their time to go and share, right? To share their learning. They want to talk to you, right? Mm-hmm. That's that makes their day, right? And some people want to talk to you because they, they've got something to sell, but other times they're there because they want to learn and they want to teach. That's the whole reason for going to a conference. They want to get a takeaway too. 
under no circumstances should you should you be shy you know i i just say hey if you're if you want to get in try to come out of your shell go up to somebody you haven't met before and introduce yourself and and ask what they do and you know if it's not a good fit for the conversation because you're an seo and you're talking to somebody who's purely in paid search and you don't have a lot in common that's fine you know share your your 10 15 minutes and meet somebody else and and don't be afraid to say to excuse yourself from a conversation either sure. don't feel like you need to be locked in yep. you know as there's conferences are micro conversations, right? A little bit here and there, uh, but it, you'll find. And uh, another tidbit I have is be the last one in. You know, it, it, the, your time spent with continued education, and that's what I view conferences as: is continued education. Doctors need it, real estate agents need it. That's our version of continued ed. Mm -hmm. um, I I stay out late, and Danny, I think you remember a night in Florida. You know, I think we were we were the last ones turning in, and we were geeking out pretty good. And yeah, you really find the the passionate people late at night. Yeah, right when when everybody else is gone, when there's not a lot of distractions. My best conversations were that were with Frank Bauer closing down Bourbon Street at at three thirty four five in the morning. Right, mm -hmm. that's, honestly, that's the best conversation. So be prepared to be tired and be prepared to recover, but don't turn in when everybody's still out. If there's still mm -hmm. people out that are worth talking to, don't don't give up on that experience because you you might not have a chance to talk to them in a one-on-one -on -one setting for years. Yep. Good point. Okay. All right. Before we move on, I I, I, do, I have to know what was the cringeworthy question from the uh, <laughs> from your conference there that you mentioned. <laughs> so at no point during the tools presentation did I mention link building and link building was on the aggressive side in those days. Right. And then, sure. and I shouldn't say aggressive. I'll say creative side. Creative. In sure. Those days. Mm -hmm. um, you know, coming off the heels of 2006 directories coming off the heels of two, 2008, 2009 um, forum comments. Right. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the brokers out there, um, I had somebody in the audience ask me point blank during the Q and a, who do you buy your links from? <laughs> and I can't even make this up. Uh, a really good friend of mine and a link broker that I was in the audience sitting two people away from him. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I gracefully kind of removed myself from that question, but uh, you could probably see the steam coming out of my head. And I looked at Keith and uh, Keith, the, the person who, who put on the, the, the meetup was just kind of shaking his head. No. And, uh, <laughs> God, I'd love to call out his name. I, God, I'd love to call his name out right now, but I won't. I'll give you his first name. His first name was Robert. Okay. Um, but I'll always remember him. That's the day that that's a question that goes down and into me. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. So, um, was there ever a point in your career where you found yourself sort of struggling? Um, and if so, how did you deal with it? And what did you learn from it? You know, Danny, that's that's a tough one. I. I'm always struggling. Um, I, I will say that this is not an easy profession. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I struggle multiple ways, and uh, I, I think this actually leads into a really good discussion. Uh, I've been working for from home for ten years. Mm -hmm. um, my first home work from home job was ninety nine until I went to Lending Tree. The only time I've been in an office was uh, Lending Tree and, and Red Ventures. Um, so there's the personal. Um, area which is which is very challenging and there's the professional area that that prevents challenges professionally we are in a, a profession which relies solely on the ranking within a third-party directory 
like Google makes changes and they don't share things with us. And um, sites screw up and the, the forensic side and people thinking that we can identify it in five minutes and that doesn't go away no matter how much we educate that forensics and, and audits and things like that take time. Um, that's a challenge, right? And it's a constant challenge to put the right material together for each audience. Each audience is a little bit different. So I'm, I'm constantly challenged at this job and that's never changed since I started. I, I constantly feel like Google's going to do something that is going to make me lose sleep for a couple of weeks. And it happens from time to time. But, mm -hmm. um, that literally will keep me up at night when Google makes a major change and it, it impacts one of my clients or they've, they go through a migration and I, you know, I wasn't there from, they come to me after the fact. Right. And uh, that's, that's troubling. Right. Um, I'd say from a personal standpoint, working from home, like a lot of us do in this industry, you lack a lot of that human interaction. Mm -hmm. So trying to find a, the, the proper outlets to re, you know, keep my sanity like everybody else is, is important. And that's why, you know, I, I put so much emphasis on the, on these conferences, right. And, sure. and the, the, the quality time you get with people in the industry, but um, it's, it's difficult to balance that. And uh, I'd say that's a challenge just trying to, just to keep the head on right when uh, your whole day is video conferencing and you don't get water cooler talks. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, let's talk about SEO campaigns. So I'm going to, I actually asked this, uh, I believe it was in uh, my interview with Jenny Halas for the first time I asked it. And I love the question. Um, so I'm going to ask it of you also. Um, did you ever have a, an SEO campaign where things didn't go according to plan and how do you, and how do you think you would do any of that differently if you could like do it over again? And when I say, when I ask this, you don't have to name any names for like any clients or anything, but just sort of curious from an SEO perspective, if you've ever had, ever had one of those, you know, really challenging cases where you thought something was going to go well and it didn't and uh, sort of how you figured it out. And would you go, you know, if you could go back and do it over, what would you do differently? Yeah. You know, it's on that question, you know, I, I see a couple bad ones and I see, a couple good ones that that far went beyond my expectations as well. You know, mm -hmm. there there are a couple. There's always some some bad decisions, right? In SEO, and I'll I'll give it a, an exact example, but I want the philosophy behind it. I think is very important. Um, I be, I personally believe that within the uh, within the constructs of organic search and SEO, there needs to be a constant iteration of experiments, right? A mm -hmm. constant. Hey, I can do better than this. You know, what can I do? What can I push forward? Um, there was a there was a time in my career I was I firmly believed that you know investing in and I still believe that content works. So this you know we're we're talking multiple years ago. You know when you know I, I am a technical SEO and I am also a, a content driven SEO. You know both now, but the first time I iterated on content, um, I didn't really do it with the best technical release. And we, we suppressed content with the, uh, essentially we were taking blog, but it was built in a WordPress uh, CMS and we would take posts and we would only show like the first paragraph. It was actually a number of characters, right? First, so many lines. Okay. Um, but I didn't know enough about it to, to say if it would work or not. So we released all of this great content um, for a brand new site. Uh, it went live, everything appeared to be going great. Uh, especially for the first two or three months. Um, and then it pretty much snowballed downhill. And it turned out, and it took a couple months to really determine what, we were ready to scratch the site and 
you know, this is back when we, you know, we had another one coming up and another one coming up and constantly this iteration of, of websites in this space. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that the way we implemented it, we used a display hidden or display none. Can't remember which one it was. One of the display, I think it was display none mm -hmm. uh, at the certain breakpoint. So the content and a few links were actually visible in the HTML, uh, but it was hidden from the, the human user. And that was kind of like a smack in the face because it's a no brainer, right? It's, uh, it's suppressing content, it's hitting content. Um, we remove that and if it's correlated or if it's significant, I don't know, but within two weeks, we, we ended up getting our traffic back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the initial thought there was, you know, all this investment that we made and, you know, it was a lot of really good content sure. um, was basically just thrown, thrown away mm -hmm. and we didn't know why. So. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I also like to ask the opposite, of course. What is your favorite SEO campaign that you've worked on and why? And again, you don't have to name clients or, you know, companies, <laughs> but uh, did you ever have just something that just you totally knocked out of the park? Yeah, and I am going to drop names because, uh, you know, a, a lot of this was, and the only reason I'm going to drop specific names is, and, and places because it was, you could see it, right? It was open on the web. Right. So the, the process was there and it wasn't, you know, we weren't hiding it uh, back in, in 2007, uh, running into 2008. This is before the, the advent of a lot of local search boxes. Mm -hmm. um, I built geo campaigns and uh, the engineer at the time was a gentleman by the name of Ryan Currington who engineered it. Uh, you know, I put the process in place and put the strategy behind it. But essentially, we built a way where we slowly released every city in every state within the United States uh, for DirecTV platform. Oh. Um, essentially, what we ended up doing, it, it was so well that it rebranded DirecTV. So oh. DirecTV is all one word. It's D-I-R-E-C-T-V is mm -hmm. the brand name for DirecTV. However, there are, you can do this with impression volume. So it's, there's nothing proprietary. I'm not showing anything proprietary here. Sure. DirecTV, especially at the time, has higher search volume, right? Direct space TV, the two word right. term. Mm -hmm. We were using the direct space TV and all of the, the content and all of the titles and everything and all of these kind of mad libbed pages that we released. And when you searched for direct TV, the brand, the one word in Google, Google would actually say this was, this took place in 2009 or 2010, a year or two after the release, Google would actually say, did you mean direct space TV? Mm. And it would, and we owned the number one and two back when you can get the indentation in Google too. And the, you know, when you have the second right. listing yep. and uh, you know, it, it, it became like a solid core form of all of our the sites we released. If a cool story tying in, you know, competitive nature and, and how well it worked, our biggest competitor at the time was a company named Trident based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, a very uh, prominent name in the industry, Jake Bohal, who now I believe he's the CEO or he's, he's running to some extent um, Hive Marketing out of, uh, out of, uh, Raleigh, he speaks at PubCon as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we were competitors at the time, and he, my first PubCon I went to, he put up my site in a site review and asked uh, Greg Bozer and another, uh, you know, more people on the panel, what are these guys doing? These geo, these geo pages are just crushing it. And uh, they were responsible for quite a bit of revenue. So it was, uh, it was a crowning moment. It was definitely one of those campaigns that just, of everything I've done in the past, it, it hit so quickly and it was so finely executed so we would we would release 
the state names first, and then we would release the alpha, you know, the 50 top alphas for each letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would release all the other, you know, other states. And this, it was a slow process that would take a month and a half or two months to release, but we were working with, you know, Googlebot. We weren't just automatically uploading, you know, 2,500 or 6,000 pages to, to Google at a time. It was a, a very, you know, uh, perci- precise and precision based execution. So sorry, that's, one of my favorite campaigns ever. I'm yeah. still still proud of it and still proud of what we did. That's very cool. I love it. Um, all right. So let's see. What do you uh, – do you have any, like, favorite resources? You know, it could be blogs or people, social media accounts, podcasts, whatever, that uh, you sort of follow uh, that you would recommend to other people who want to learn more about SEO. Um uh, yeah, just anything that you you could recommend. Like, who keeps you informed these days? Good question. So, obviously, we've got Search Engine Journal. I think that that's high on everybody's list. Well, right? This podcast as well. Um, there is a digital marketing pod- podcast by Matt Statilla and uh, and Dave Rower. I mm. probably butchered your last name again, Matt. I apologize. <laughs> um, and, I like that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those motivating podcasts that, that I like to listen to, mm-hmm. um, as far as, as journalistic side, you know, obviously search engine journal, search engine land and, uh, SE Roundtable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'll do a phenomenal job of keeping us up to date as to what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, within the industry, um, platforms or, or data, you know, I'm, I'm using the, my top five, top six right now are SEM rush conductor, bright edge. Um, deep crawl and botify, uh, I'm a huge fan. Of, you have to have some kind of crawling, uh, tool. Sure. Obviously, screaming frog, everybody's using that. People, Danny, this is, this is tough. I could probably list out one to 200 people here, sure. um, that have, that I would listen to and follow on a regular basis. I'm, I'm weird on Twitter. Um, I'm weird with writing blog posts. I'm weird with, with sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably should do, I should do more. Um, I, I don't, I don't know why. Uh, there are so many people in this industry that are amazing that uh, I think the best thing to do would be to go to some of these conferences, not, not necessarily physically go to them, but, but go to the, the uh, SMX website, you know, go to the PubCon website, look at who the speakers are, um, add them to Twitter and, uh, and add them to a group and, and follow them. Mm-hmm. Um, most of, uh, of my closest friends in the industry have come from those, those conferences. And I, I truly feel blessed that they feel like family and I would be doing a disservice to, to mention one or two, sure. um, have to have to throw Brett out there and, uh, and Melissa and, uh, you know, the entire PubCon group, just because they've been so gracious throughout my career in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeff Randall, of course, and, uh, and Amanda, everybody that, that works over there, um, at, at PubCon, I think has been just amazing at, at pushing this forward and, and building a community. I don't know where to start. I, I shouldn't be naming names because there are way too many to, to name and I'm going to forget somebody to feel horrible for sure. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, let's see. If you weren't doing search or marketing or SEO or anything, what profession would you love to be doing instead? Wow. Uh, two part. Uh, I coach youth flag football. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are now in, currently. I've been in about six or seven different systems with my son. 
And right now, as a side job, I'm uh, opening up a nonprofit. It's an Under Armour League. We're starting next spring in Charlotte. Oh, nice. um, not only for the youth in the area, but we're also going to bring in uh, people, underprivileged uh, youth, who might not be able to afford it and, uh, and get them cleats and get them everything they need and build teams. Um, that's not a profession. That's a hobby. If I were to do anything professionally, um, man, brew beer. Ah, nice. That's a good one. All right. Um, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've gotten um, about, it could be about SEO or it could be professional business advice, uh, and who gave it to you? <laughs> Slow down. Um, Rich Fleck, I do talk fast. You know, my brain works. You know, sometimes uh, he'll, he'll kick me under the table or just let me know to, to tone it down a little bit. I get really excited. I get passionate. Um, sometimes taking your time, you know, if you, if you take a step back, the data becomes more clear. Um, that's probably like a, a cop out answer, but it's, uh, you know, just be patient. Uh, and, uh, actually, no, I, I take that back. I'm going to take that back. Okay. I'm going to give you one word, one word. Um, Belvin Eves is a, uh, He's a mixed martial art uh, trainer. He passed away uh, in the early 2000s. I trained under him for many years. And uh, he was big on the word respect. And, uh, you know, you bow before you come into word. You know, you, that's how you greet and you, you leave is with the word respect. Respect's a big, uh, big word for me. I, I try to treat everybody that way. Um, whether, whether they're, you know, taking my order at a drive-thru or they're, you know, the executive of a company that I'm trying to pitch to. Um, handling things with respect I would say has gotten me to where I am at. I'm at. Although it's uh, even though I give it away freely, if you lose it, it's uh, pretty much impossible to ever get it back. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. What about what is the worst piece of SEO advice that you've either ever heard or that is still out there making the rounds and you just wish it would, you know, go away and die forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Where to start? Um, <laughs> let's go with content and technical content. I'd say that your content needs to be above the fold. Mm. I mean, there's nothing that, that proves that. Mm -hmm. I know that there's certain people out there from Google that recommend it. Um, I'll go out there and say that there's too many times I, I talk to people and they swear up and down that you need to do that. And uh, I'll say no. The second one from a technical standpoint is somebody telling me and Here's, this is going to be the controversial one. Um, it's my own personal belief, and, uh, and I'm going to throw it out there because I believe that half of the industry is wrong and half of the industry is right. So mm -hmm. you're, going to get, you're going to get a lot of people hating on me for this one. <laughs> Probably a lot of people telling me I'm wrong, too, but that's okay because I have some data that supports it, which is why I back it up. I believe, personally believe, especially with e-commerce, that the growth of 404 errors on your site will lead to long-term uh, depreciation of certain page templates. Hmm. What I mean by that, and the, the reason I say that, and again, if I get too specific, cut me off at any time, Danny. I, okay. I, I won't take it personally. Um, I believe that 404s cause long-term harm for multiple reasons. One is they reduce the ability to, to really see what issues are at play. As they grow, they, they remain there, and you can't get rid of them. Right. Yep. Um, they do chew up a little bit of bandwidth from Google's call perspective. Not much, you know, probably not even enough to mention. 
Uh, it is a form of link building. If you find a broken link, you can link to the proper page. That's link building 101. It's clean. It's white hat, the cleanest form of link building you can get. Yeah. The problem is, is if you have a growing 404 issue on your site, and let's, we'll use e-commerce as an example. You've got a product page which hasn't changed in a year, right? Google's crawl rate will reduce. Now, I have found that Google's gotten much better at, at their crawls, but, you know, when you work with listing sites, let's say Yellow Pages, you know, any kind of listing site like Spokio or anything that has, you know, non-e-commerce, just a lot of information out there, very few links to a product page. It's possible that that page doesn't get crawled or accessed by Google, by your autonomous user, maybe once a month. I've seen it sometimes six weeks plus hmm. at deep level product pages, right? Mm -hmm. um, I will say, again, disclaimer, Google's getting better, okay, at, at their crawl efficacy. Now, let's say Google today sees that the page is live, they come back six weeks later, and it's a 404. Google doesn't know at what point that page turned to a 404. They don't. They right. didn't come back to see it for six weeks in between. Mm -hmm. It could have been out there for six weeks. And this is this is a real, I'm going to ask you a question really quickly, Danny, because it's been a long time for me. When is the last time you clicked on a page one result that that gave you a 404 page in Google? Actually, it wasn't that long ago. It happened to me Damn. probably within the last week. <laughs> yeah. Well, there goes that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't happen often for me anymore. Right. That, no, I mean, you just kind of blew that one out of the well, water. Well, it did, but if you had asked me that, like, before last week, I couldn't have remembered, honestly. But it was just such a fluke that that happened, I think. <laughs> yeah, Google does a pretty good job of filtering them out, right? Sure. But they have oh, to yeah. find them. And I view it like if, if we worked at, in the same office and I go to you for a lunch recommendation, and for and I go every day, you know, five days a week, and uh, you give me the best restaurants, and it's always a new restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, after two years of that, I, I travel 20 minutes, and the place is closed down. I'm still going to ask you tomorrow and be like, hey, man, that place is closed down. But if that increases over time and the density of those closed down places increases, I'm going to look to you a little bit less often mm -hmm. as my, as my go-to. I personally believe that it, it impacts your authority and it acts, and then, uh, this is, I hate using this term, but it, it is what it is. It almost acts like a cancer, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's, it's an authority thing. Now, John or, or Gary, if they're listening, will probably chew me apart and tell me I'm completely wrong and I'm the worst SEO ever, and I'll, I'll take that beating. I do have some data that shows a specific page type. It's one, I granted it is one client, but it is a client um, who started seeing a rapid increase in 404s over the span of three or four months. Mm -hmm. And just a few months later started seeing that, that slow creeping death on a specific template. Mm -hmm. It was template based death in e-commerce. It was at product pages. Mm -hmm. um, nothing else happened to those pages. So, you know, there, there's just too much about them that tells me you should focus on them. Again, there's going to be a couple of people that hate on me for it and I'll take whatever grief people want to throw at me. I'm going to do it. And that's the way I'm going to handle my site is I'm going to make sure it's clean sure. and I'm going to make sure that Google has a really clean experience and they get the recommendations when I want to get into them. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like that. I, I would agree with that. I think that totally does make sense. So I'm not going to, you know, get out the pitchforks or anything here. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Next question for you. If you could go back in time and give your your, your younger self uh, some advice from any age, what would it be 
you know, sort of the whole idea of knowing now what you know, uh, is there anything you would, uh, you know, do differently or advise yourself to do differently? Wow. That's a great question. So professionally, uh, I would have gotten into to SEO in the nineties mm. and, uh, gotten into, gotten into the affiliate realm. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. It's a, <laughs> the wild, wild west of affiliates in late nineties, early two thousands. Sure. I would have, I would have definitely tipped my hat on that and said, you know, there's look at the opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, you know, I, you know, there's a time when I, I left home and I went up to Buffalo for four years and, uh, you know, hindsight, you know, spending more time with the, the ones you love, you can never go wrong with. So always making, making sure you spend enough time with your family and never neglect that. Yeah. All right. In your opinion, how can newcomers to our industry eventually become successful? What are sort of the key or a few keys to sustain, excuse me, sustainable success in the industry? Sustainable success, you know, constantly, constantly battle for resources, mm-hmm. you know, either people resources, budget resources, um, never take, never say, I don't know, mm. or sorry, I, I take that back. Okay. I take that back. I take that back. I, I mean to say, never be afraid to say, I don't know, mm-hmm. but make sure you follow up. I don't know with research and get back to the person you said, I don't know too, and provide the knowledge that you didn't know. Right? Mm-hmm. Somebody's asking you a question because they trust your opinion. If you don't know, you need to, you need to explain to them. So have it, just have a constant passion for finding answers. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that's what SEO is. is we don't know. We, we really don't know the question. You know, we're looking for answers when we don't know what questions Google's asking. We have a good idea of it, but it's, it's a constant endless search for, for information. Mm-hmm. Just be hungry. Yep. Good. I like that couple reader questions, or audience questions, I suppose, technically, uh, since there aren't people reading the podcast. Uh, Brian Harnish of Site Objective, who's a search engine journal contributor, wanted me to ask you, what has been your most successful SEO automation project to date, and what has it taught you about SEO? Ooh, SEO automation project. There's been been quite a handful of them. Um, So, wow. That is, that's deep. Give me, give me one sec. Cause, because, you know, I, I come from a, a platform provider, right? With, with Conductor, I built platforms at Red Ventures and, mm-hmm. and I work with a, a pretty unique platform now. Um, and we're, we're always iterating. We're always building things. You know, I can look at some gap analysis that, that I've built that, you know, it, it was my own unique view. But when we come to completely automated, so there was a tool I called a, a site health template. And I still have an Excel version of it or a Google Docs version of it. And I'm happy to share it with you. Um, Danny, I'll, I'll send you a, a shared copy of it. Awesome. But it's, it's easy to automate that. And it pulls it and it's pure text, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not flashy. It's not graphy. It just shows Delta week over week or month over month of where you are in specific data points. And it takes in uh, revenue attribution metrics. It takes in Google Analytics metrics. It takes in Search Console metrics. Mm-hmm. It takes in your your SERP provider. So if it's Conductor or Bright Edge, and it's very easy. And of, of course, a couple of other things as well. But it's very easy to automate, and that allows you because when there's changes in the you know when there's cracks in the in the foundation, it allows you to go and and kind of correlate different data points together. A lot of times we're and I say that because now. 
platforms are getting smarter and they're, they're getting more robust. Historically, that's the, the best thing I've built was my own proprietary reporting set. Mm-hmm. Um, I still share it with clients. If you, if you work in-house, ha- even agencies have some they'll share with you too, but building one centralized unit of reporting that takes in all of the data so you have one place to go to do your analysis. And it's, it's going to take a lot of time if you do that by hand. Automating that centralized reporting structure within your own uh, corporation is going to be huge. And I'll be honest with you, with all due respect to Bright Edge, to Conductor, to SEMrush, to all these other great platform providers out there, Spotify and DeepCrawl and OnCrawl, they, they do a great job, but nobody's going to do as good of a job as if you bring in your own data, port them all together, and you can show them as your source of truth within the organization. Mm-hmm. You obviously call out where you got the data from, but if you have to pull up a screen from Conductor and then go over to DeepCrawl, and then you're pulling in you know, a, a monster, it just, it doesn't make sense. And then you're pulling in search console, like having one fluid, same look and feel. Um, that's probably my favorite thing to do. And I know it's more reporting than it is execution, but you know, it, it, it gets you more buy-in. It allows you to tell the story better. Gotcha. Very cool. I like that. I have one more audience question from Dave Davies of Beanstalk Internet Marketing. And another, yeah, another search engine journal contributor as well. He wanted me to ask you this. What techniques or tools do you use to reverse engineer Google's algorithms? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. I love it, Dave. Love it. All right. To reverse engineer Google's algorithms. So, you know, it's a tough one. I mean, there's so many metrics we look at, right? Matt Hunt used to say over 200. My favorite tools... Let's say I had to, to really strike that. Now, I'm not going to go for the cop-out search console, right? Everybody's going to use that. Um, I'm going to stay away from the guys that I've previously mentioned. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out one. I'm going to say my favorite tool right now, and uh, with no disrespect to, to the other tool makers out there or platform providers out there, uh, my go-to for reverse engineering is the first place I start is SEMrush. Mm-hmm. The reason I like, and there's, there's pros and cons, but what I like is that I, with one tool, I can go back in time for just about any site. And I know there's other providers out there. I just prefer this aspect of SEMrush, but I can go back in time to April 2016 and find out why a specific um, client lost traffic or, or lost their showing for, you know, on April 16th for category pages, right? I can go back in SEMrush and I can pull the top 30,000 or 60,000 uh, ranking results then. And then I'll go to my other favorite tool, which a lot of people haven't heard of. It's called nozzle.io. Um, amazing SERP tracking tool. And I will collect the same keywords that I just collected from back in time. The reason I go to another platform provider to do that is because it's sometimes it's harder to do the matchups with current day because I can only download so many and you've got to ma- pair them up perfectly. I like to use the, the current matchups. Um, and there I try to, I do a delta analysis, right? What lost ground and what gained ground? I'll look to see if there's landing page differences. Um, now, is this reverse engineering Google's algorithms? No, this is just purely forensics. From an algorithmic perspective, um, man, Dave, you, you really got me, man. Um, <laughs> there's so many tools and platforms. I'm trying to think of the best ones to use out there. You know, every site I work with, is unique. They're on a different CMS, right? They're they're providing data differently. You know, some of them are on a dynamic serve site, some of them are responsive. 
So their HTML is different depending on, you know, who's looking at them. So trying to determine if they are on mobile first, which most are, right? So trying to crawl with Googlebot by smartphone using Screaming Frog to, to see what's different out there and collecting the top 10 results, 20 results and seeing what's different. It is a moving algorithm, right? And I, I think that's what's so much fun here is we know the basics of what works, the basic constructs to a page. That I've just, we've all learned over time. You know, I think Dave and Mary have done a great job understanding that as well. Um, I like learning new ways to, to try to understand the major shifts. And I, um, one of my favorite blog posts when there's major shifts in the industry is uh, I think Barry Schwartz does a good job of stack ranking them on top of each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Danny, I, I know you guys do too. No, I'm not taking away from search engine journal. I know. Um, That's fair. You know, Barry, Barry does a good job there. Yeah. Um, and I also have my own trending analysis that looks strictly at e-commerce and if you look now today, and, and Dave, I've got a question for you, if you can give me some feedback too. <laughs> the days of 2010, when there's an algorithm update and uh, the industry as a whole continues to troubleshoot it for a couple of months, right? And then says mm. with very definitive answers, this is what I see. The industry used to share yep. often and, uh, and openly, and, and we used to troubleshoot together, right? through the comments, through, through forums, through the discussions. And we, we did a good job and it would take time, but we all had different insights from different clients. Mm-hmm. If you look back historically at some of the, the later, and there's been a lot over the last couple of years, the algorithm updates, the industry as a whole doesn't break them down and give the end result as much as they used to. We have, hey, here's a, there's a storm brewing. And then we move on until the next storm comes. Like there's not a lot of people saying here's a, okay, it was a medic update, but there's not, it was left at that. Like who, how many articles go back and say, here's how to recover from the medic. Do you remember how many articles there were about people running experiments, recovering from penguin? You know, people weren't recovering for over a year Mm -hmm. and everybody had a theory and everybody was testing and they were publishing their experiments Mm -hmm. and it was, it was great. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. Long-winded question from from Dave. You know, what do I do to reverse engineer Google's algorithms? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a slew of tools, and I think it's a, a mentality and approach to to the industry more than anything else. Sure, I like it. Okay, what are you most excited about in SEO right now? It could be specific to enterprise or just generally, of course. Whatever is most I'm, exciting. Yeah. To. I'm going to go back to revenue, right? I mean, mm-hmm. right now, and revenue and content are two-part answers. So right now, people are making, still making money hand over fist, even with a shrinking growth opportunity in organic search. Mm-hmm. People are still making a lot of money. And there's still, even 10 years later, large organizations are still paying a lot of money for top-tier talent. Like, the, the talent is still there. People are still getting paid in our industry, right? It's still ripe. People are, you know, it takes time for companies to fill these roles. Outside of that, when we look at content, content excites me more than anything else because content is no longer the written word. We do have voice search that's on the horizon that people are experimenting with right now and the ways to, you know, engage in the question and answer box, the ways to capitalize and and obtain those featured snippet boxes, which, you know, we've had some success there too. You know, images we mentioned earlier, videos we touched on a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Content as a whole is changing. You know, also the, the search... Uh, search landscape is changing. You know, Twitter and Facebook are now mentioned 
in that same article by Spark Toro on, you know, top search browsers, right? And I think the social aspect and the, the personalization aspect of getting content out there that isn't spammed and, you know, hyper-focused on specific terms, but actually built to engage customer emotion, I think is growing. And, and we've seen a lot of success of the, the content that works now is, is real, right? It's, it's real people. It's real information. It's real content that hits a court. And I'm excited to see where it goes because I think just politically, and I'm not saying left or right, but I think politically there's this shift towards, you know, providing a good social ex experience with the site and social, not just from a, a, you know, Facebook and Twitter, but a social from a, we're doing something that matters. You know, we have a cause, like we we're doing some philanthropic, I can't even speak, right? That's what excites me. Companies are, are getting more engaged with their consumer and it shows, mm -hmm. you know, um, example is, um, the love, I, uh, what is it called? Love pops, those greeting cards that open up and the, they're, they're really, you know, finally engineered into a 3d work of art. Uh, they've invested in a couple of people on their books who just write a thank you note on the packages. They send them out. I just, just somebody handwriting a thank you note. Mm -hmm. uh, who, who does that? I love pops does that. Right. It's they're they're engaging with their consumer. You know, we talked about Secret Lab, you know, the, the gaming chair. I, you know, we talk about social and what excites me. It excites me that somebody is willing to give me going from a two year warranty to a five year warranty just to post a picture of their chair and throw it on my Twitter channel. I don't I don't do a lot of publications or, or product reviews, but mm. I extended my warranty by three years just by posting a picture of this chair that I like. Nice. They, they're getting people engaged. And then I'm looking at their social feed because I'm enjoying it. I'm seeing other people that are enjoying the same thing I am. I think people are finding ways to, to truly engage with their customers using content, not just spamming content for SEO. And it's working for SEO. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's great. All right. What's next for Brian McDowell? <laughs> Big thing. <laughs> no, um, you know, this road is crazy. I don't know where it's going to take me. And uh, I don't know where SEO is going to be five years from now. Um, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing today. I'm sure I'm going to be enjoying what I'm doing tomorrow. Um, just blessed to be in this industry that, that has a lot of really good, you know, intellectual leaders, you know, paving the way. So uh, next for me is uh, helping somebody else get to where they want to be. Nice. Great answer. I like that one. My final question for you, where can people find you on social media or anywhere online? Um, and if there's any anything in particular you'd like people to check out, now is your chance to send them wherever you want. Sure. You know, please reach out to me. Um, the two best places to get a hold of me are, are Twitter and LinkedIn. Honestly, I check LinkedIn more than I do Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm more old school. I'm aging, but uh, I'm Twitter at Brian underscore McDowell. LinkedIn, very simply, McDowell, my last name. Uh, reach out to me, shoot me a note. I love to, uh, I love to talk shop. I'm happy to get on a call or, or have a conversation about the industry with anybody. I just, I really enjoy it. And that's, uh, that's genuine. So reach out. Awesome. So as we wrap up, I saw no better way to do that than by reading a quote, uh, which I believe tells you all you need to know about Brian McDowell. Um, and actually you actually already touched on this a little bit. So Apologies for the redundancy, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was really nice. So uh, when uh, Barry Schwartz was doing that, uh, you know, recognize an SEO feature, 
Uh, he had asked you what you wanted to be known for at the SEO space. Here's what you responded with. You said respect for people and the process. Everything we do for our company, clients, the industry, and our families amount to nothing if not handled with a level of respect for others and their abilities. Many say respect is earned, but I disagree. Respect is given from the first handshake, but can easily be lost. When you lose someone's respect, it is impossible to ever get it back. This is an important trait when you are dealing with multiple teams that require different approaches. Those who have my deepest respect undoubtedly know it. I like that a lot, Brian, and uh, just so you know, you've got my respect, uh, and I know you've got the respect of a heck of a lot of other people in this industry who know you, so thank you for all that you have done and for all that you are doing to help our industry. Thank you, Danny, and, and I hope you know that that respect is reciprocal, 100%. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So yeah, thanks again, Brian, for taking the time to join us today on the Search Engine Journal Show. That will do it for us. Uh, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Remember to look for our next podcast the same time next week for more great insights and conversations like this one. New episodes drop every Thursday morning. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, and if you like this podcast, please tell your coworkers and industry friends about the Search Engine Journal Show. We would uh, sincerely appreciate any support that you could give us. Uh, you can also follow Search Engine Journal at SE Journal on Twitter. And uh, you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if you want to follow me, I am Mr. Danny Goodwin on Twitter. So long and thanks for listening. On the next